Having a versatile, high-quality piece of clothing feels great, but having a whole closet full of favorites feels even better. American Giant puts the quality, durability, and comfort they're famous for into everything you need for your spring days. From premium t-shirts and jeans to lightweight French terry joggers and their legendary best hoodie ever. Get 20% off your first order at American-Giant.com with code STAPLE20 at checkout. That's American-Giant.com, code STAPLE20. Hey, everybody, it's Barry from the What Podcast. Hey, it's Russ. Hey, it's Brian, and we are giving away two tickets to Bonnaroo 2024. These are GA+, and they include camping. Russ, how do people get qualified? We want to hear your top artists to play on the Bonnaroo 2024 lineup. Call 423-667-7877 and tell us who we should check out. It's the What Podcast. Thanks. Consequence Podcast Network. Welcome to In Defense of Ska. This is our first episode on the Consequence Podcast Network. We aim to push back on the mainstream's negative perception of the music. Ska deserves the respect genres like punk, hip-hop, and hardcore find among their listeners. Our host is renowned music journalist and author of the book In Defense of Ska, Aaron Carnes. Today we bring on 311's bassist Peanut to talk about the group's place in Ska. 311 formed in 1988 in Omaha, Nebraska, They put out some indie releases and moved to Los Angeles in the early 90s. The band scored their first number one single in 1996 with the song Down from their third album. The song hit at the same time as ska was climbing the charts, and the group were often spoken in the same breath as the 90s third wave ska boom happening in the mainstream at the moment. And now joining me is my co-host, veteran ska musician Adam Davis of Omnigon and Link 80. 311 isn't really ska. Why do you think they get lumped in with ska bands? The mainstream didn't really know a lot about ska, so a lot of bands got lumped in like Smash Mouth, Sugar Ray, and the Swing Revival. In the case of 311, they definitely had more ska elements than most. Yeah. When I first heard 311 in high school, they were playing with both ska bands like Skank and Pickle and new metal bands like Korn. That makes sense. Uh, 311 were influenced by a lot of genres. Yeah, that was true of many bands of that era. So I spent a good chunk of time watching uh, your bass solos on YouTube. Oh, shit. Did you get some elements of ska in my bass solos? <laughs> <laughs> well, the thing that struck me was that they're like different. Like, do you compose bass solos like every tour? How does that work? I mean, there's there's like there's themes that I play that I want people to recognize, and there's songs that I'll play that I want people to sing along to. But other than that, it's all improv. Oh, is it? Okay. Yeah, I'm not really. I'm, I'm, yeah, I'm just trying to not do the same thing. I'm, I'm trying to play patterns that come to me in the moment, really, you know. And, and, and I need to make them more melodic. That's always kind of my, my point, like to show off the melodic side of the instrument. As, as a lot of times, we're just making the drums sound better in a lot of <laughs> cases. But, but, uh, but yeah, I think that's why they let me do it at all is because there is some kind of exploration that goes on and I'll stumble upon melodies that I'm that I'm not really even planning so um yeah it's fun to it's fun to fun to do and you know, thanks for going down that rabbit hole uh, it makes me it makes me nervous still it's like the only thing 
playing live that makes me nervous at all. And I guess that's a good thing because if I wasn't nervous, then you know, I, I guess I don't care. <laughs> so I still care. And, but it's, um, it's a lot of re about the bass solos because uh, you know, just making something up on the fly is, is a little nerve-wracking. Yeah, it is interesting because, like you're saying, so, there are parts where it's extremely melodic, and then then you'll like do something very rhythmic, like it's like slapping, and it's like very much about the rhythm that you're doing. And it seems like you kind of switch back and forth between these styles of, of like really emphasizing melody and then rhythm when you're doing your solos. Yeah, that's that's what I'm aiming for. It's super fun. It's uh, sometimes it takes a little to get to where I want to go. And it's cool that the band and the audience allow me to do that. And then sometimes I'm in a rush because I'm feeling the pressure and I'll just kind of crush everything together. And, you know, that's never going to be the best version of it, but it's still going to be a lot of fun. And my basses sound really good by themselves. So <laughs> that's, a, that's something I like to kind of show off too, is, you know, it's not a, it's not a, you know, two hundred dollar made in made in wherever base. It's a <laughs> it's a it's a you know it's a hand built German piece of art. So mm -hmm. so I'm you know I have a lot of fun doing just that just to even just play pure notes from the bass guitar without any kind of interference is uh, is rare in in almost any show. That that makes me that gives me confidence to explore whatever. You know good or bad idea i'm having at the moment <laughs> you started with music on the violin right i did i started playing violin at seven and really enjoyed it uh just you know it, it's like the team thing i i you know i kind of found my tribe in the orchestra as a kid um just having fun kind of doing the same thing not doing the exact same thing as everybody else but coming together in a similar way and creating something that you couldn't do on your own that blew me away and that, you know i didn't have that kind of an understanding of it but that's why i stuck with it is because i wasn't the only one doing it i was doing it you know with a team and then so what what led you to the bass because i think the bass was a few years later right right i started playing bass at 11. Uh, i got a i got my first bass for christmas and I had to take guitar lessons for like six weeks because there weren't any like beginner guitar uh, bass lessons. So that was kind of weird and disorienting and definitely didn't steer me away from the bass. I was like, I was like, this puny little thing ain't gonna, ain't gonna stop me. I want to do what, you know, Steve Harris is doing and I want to do what Cliff Burton is doing and Metallica and, and then, uh, you know, I, I've got bass heroes, brand new ones, you know, to this day, and it started from those moments. And I, I like fiddling around with the guitar, but it's all—it's always been the bass for me. It's always made sense. I always kind of saw it as uh, there was a hole in the neighborhood. You know, there were drummers and there were guitarists, and there were, everyone thought they could sing. You know, everyone who wanted to, and everyone can. It's, a, it's the instrument you care, carry around with yourself. So, being a bass player made a lot of sense as I saw that there was a need for that. Even as a, even as a youngster, I was like, Oh, you know, shit, let's do that. You know, as I, as I speak to myself in the in plurals. <laughs> <laughs> well, the, the bass is an interest, interesting contribution to the songs. It's not necessarily right in your face, but it really adds something that's important to the song. And I think it seems like people who are bass players are really drawn to that aspect of it. Yeah, hopefully. I, I mean, I, I was kind of inundated with the 
like the pop side of MTV and seeing bass players like bored out of their minds, you know, just like, oh God, I gotta do 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 deep 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 deep. I gotta do this again. Like I'm like, man, I ain't gonna do that. You know, you're gonna you're gonna you're gonna influence me in a way that I'm going to curve around that kind of boring aspect of the instrument and and really try my best to shine a light on how cool cool it really is and how how fun it really is to play. You know, the way Chad and Nick and Tim and SA and all of us write in the band is really bass centric. So uh, everyone comes up with cool ideas and it's uh, it's forever interesting to have new batches of songs to work with and hear what ideas they have going on with melody and harmony and rhythm and, and all these things. And, you know, what they, what they want to get out of the song from the bass and the relationship with everything else is, is just endlessly fascinating to me. Uh, even 33 years working with the same people, you know, it's, it's, it's fun. It's a, it's a great experiment because they care about the instrument and what it adds to the songs. Yeah. I mean, 311, I mean, there's so many components to what's in, in the songs, but definitely reggae and hip hop are two of those components amongst a bunch of other things. But those are styles of music where the bass plays a very central role. Yeah, right. I'll, I'll accent different corners of the rhythm and it'll be reggae, you know, even if we're even if it's in a like a rock context, uh, I think we kind of pulled that off maybe even more like dance hall in come original, which is distorted and chunky guitars with uh, like a dance hall beat mm-hmm. and then a, a slap bass part that, that is wrapped over. It's, it's just, we were, we were drunk with, with inspiration and uh, influences and the good side of MTV. And, and like we were talking about off camera, or microphone in this case is um is having an older sibling uh feeding us kick-ass music when we were growing up and we were impressionable and uh and how how that weighs a uh, you know heavy in in you know the minds of of younger siblings i i, I love that I, and I, that's a fascinating thing for me too i really wouldn't have played any instrument if my brother hadn't picked up the saxophone he came home with this brass like you know piece of art that you know it just is in this awesome case and it's all furry and smelled like the music room which is good and bad and then just he started (laughs) playing you know (laughs) he started playing um star wars music you know he's playing the imperial march at home and i'm like this is this is blowing my mind, right? Like I've got to do this. It, it really turned into that. And, and I've got to, I got to know as much as I can. And I'd love to be able to sit down and make you know, noises that people can you know, relate to or, or not um, for the rest of my life. And it was really, I remember being in his room and being like, oh my gosh, like music. You know, it was just being front and center to someone performing for you in that household setting you know when i was super young it's just you know it's it's still the same thing that throws me upstairs for a couple hours a day on a good day but at least an hour a day um, playing youtube videos and playing whatever song i i i want to 
you know, from I've been going through a huge family man phase recently. Um, the bass player from the Whalers, if, if you don't know, possibly the greatest ska band ever. I mean, I'm just yeah. just going to say that. You know, it seems it seems it seems on theme. Sure. Uh, certainly, like wrote the wrote one of the blueprints for the you know the archetype of the of the whole sound. So, you know, and he's still doing it. He's still around, and you know, we shared a stage with them, you know, in one form or another of the Whalers, and. And we did, we did a song together. You know, me and Family Man were playing bass right next to each other, and it was just, it was one of those things that I will never, ever, ever forget. And he's such a unicorn of a player. He's so melodic and he's so rhythmic, and no one can really give his lines justice. Uh, you, you either do or you, you know, you either are or you aren't him, and you either can in that way or can't play his lines the, the right way because he has so much restraint and so much creativity you know outside of that restraint and inside of that restraint it's just it's it, it's hard to believe which song did you guys play together um did we do um iron lion zion i think i can't I, honestly i can't remember i was in a, i was in just such a daze i was just watching him the whole time <laughs> And he was all over the neck. I'm like, what the? F-? I'm like, what are you doing, dude? And he's just like, wow. It was like a, it's like a horn solo, of a, of a bass line that was totally every note was right. And he, I bet he never played it before like that or after like that. You know, that's what I kind of look for in inspiration. It's that, it's like that gospel pianist thing, where they, it seems like. A good gospel pianist can play any song any way they want to in any style with it. You know, it could be single notes and it'll make you cry or it'll be 10,000 notes, you know, all at once and it'll make you cry. It's just it's that musical understanding that goes beyond mine that um, that, you know, is, is, you know, it's this inspiration that I'm forever referring to. So in 2018, uh, there was the Back to the Beach Festival, and 311 were one of the two main headliners. Oh, yeah. Every other band on that bill is just straight up ska band, you know, mostly from the 90s. Some are more current. <laughs> I'm curious, very fascinated about your perspective, because I feel like you guys were, you weren't like you weren't a ska band per se. You had elements of it, but you kind of were, you kind of were adjacent in the scenes at that time even remember news reports about the ska thing happening and you guys would you guys and like sugar ray and some of these other bands would get mentioned too <laughs> alongside you know mighty mighty boss tones and you know really big fish and stuff so great yeah we and we luck out since since we you know since we play the ambiguous musical hybrid game you know pretty well um we get introduced into playgrounds that you know maybe we should or shouldn't <laughs> like you know we've we've kind of er- earned the right in in whatever way whoever's promoting the show and the audience you know adheres to that as well but yeah it's just i don't know there's open doors for us because we're we're good entertainers and our our music is eclectic in that way that we can play almost in front of anybody 
uh, I've seen some audiences that weren't so happy about us playing, but for the most part, we're uh, we're welcomed in almost every aspect, you know, of a, of live music. And you know, we don't play outside of our field that that much, but but yeah, you know, we can we can wear that hat. We can wear lots and lots of hats, and uh, and most of them most of them still fit. What's the most like outside of your your comfort zone show that you played? Like who have you played with where it was like, what are we doing? There has to be one. I mean, opening up for Jay-Z was oh, yeah. super, super hard in yeah. 2001. That we were doing the Sprite Liquid Mix tour with him and Talib Kweli and NERD and a couple other just incredible bands and very much you know we for the most part you know 50 50 shows were were like normal but the shows that weren't those normal kind of shows were you know it, it was it was a tough situation we were we were being told to get the get the f off the stage in not so many words and that's that's hard to take as an entertainer you know like sure. like we've got time left you know like we're not done and I'd love to give you what you want since that's, you know, we're, we're, it's a, it's, you know, we're serving the public in this way and you paid a ticket for it and I want to give you what you want. But we, one of the things we can't just do is just leave because you don't <laughs> like, you don't like our songs. But yeah, the Chicago show was particularly uh, hostile. And I was like, I was like, palms up, like, we're almost done. <laughs> like, we have five more minutes, everybody. And then we'll get the, Fuck off the stage for you, <laughs> but you know it, it's and we've been like I said like totally spoiled um, with those open arms usually. So that little bit of hardship is is more hilarious than sure. than than not. You know, and that's just psychological. But like physically difficult. There was a Warp Tour show down in Australia where we were playing with the Mighty Mighty Boston's and and Blink and and. Just that was an amazing tour. Um, we should we should do that again. It was raining in Melbourne, and it was just a mud fest. I mean, the audience was belligerent, and they were throwing like huge amounts of mud on stage. And I got I got hit right in the chest. <laughs> and it, it was and that was great too. You know, you got you got to have some got to have some adventures on the road, or you're not doing it right. Yeah. What was the Back to the Beach show specifically? What was that show like? Seemed like the crowd was pretty receptive. Yeah, yeah. I mean, SoCal can be uh, it, it can be non-responsive. It can be it can be or it can be a total love fest. And I I saw Back to the Beach as like a victory lap. Mm -hmm. You know that was that was very much appreciated by the audience and it was an incredible setting uh, right on the water. That was great. I think Feldy's got a lot of talent and putting on festivals is, is something that uh, not that many people can pull off. And uh, I think Back to the Beach is, uh, was a success and, and hopefully it'll continue to be so. Did you tweak your set for that specific audience at all? Were you thinking, how are we going to make this a little more ska? Right. Yeah, not in any kind of, not specific way. I mean... We really only have I'll Be Here a While that kind of is, for me, in the tempo of ska. Mm -hmm. 
and I'm always pushing that song because 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 it it's novel uh, in that way, as it's it's got a, a definite skank to it that is uh, perfect. You know, the the best part of the genre gets people moving in a, in a cool way, even if it's you know melancholic or or whatsoever. But I think we made it kind of we we simplified it. I think if anything, since we're kind of considering that more like a K rock show, um, as that's our big rock station down here. So back in the '90s, though, I mean, you played with a lot of these bands. I'm I'm just kind of like just looking through. Like I know you toured with uh, Fishbone, uh, Goldfinger. Yep. Voodoo Gold Skulls, I think. Hell yes, Voodoo Gold Skulls. <laughs> God, what a band! Real big, real big fish. Um, yeah, you did some stuff with No Doubt, I believe. Oh, we did. Yeah, we did lots with No Doubt. Now, as you guys were coming up. When you get before you guys sort of were a big band, you guys were kind of coming up at the same time as a lot of these bands, right? Yes, yeah, that's how we. I mean, that's how I saw shows in the '90s. Was I mean, we were so busy, and there was a few years that were 100 plus shows for us, and we were playing anything we could. So yeah, I mean, and Fishbone was a huge influence for us as the kind of SoCal hybrid music scene. Uh, they were the center of our universe for a little bit, you know, them and James and the Chili Peppers mm-hmm. and, you know, like 24 seven spies uh, to, to a lesser degree. Um, and I, I think they were from a different part of the world anyway, but, you know, bands like that were, were blowing our minds and the, to have the opportunity to play with them was just nuts, you know? And then like, then you got the Reverend Horton heat too, you know, doing like rockabilly next to these bands too and and you're like so what's the what's the audience capable of you know how how big is this influence this this window of influence that we're that we're opening as wide as we can you know in the 90s like what's that what's that going to do what's that going to do to music for the for the rest of you know our our collective lives it was it was a magic time it really was and and no doubt was absolutely on fire those early 2000 mid mid 90s shows that we played together is unreal like it's like a well-oiled machine that was also kind of chaotic but there was that that you know the little little tiny tiny little bit of danger in there and just so much talent on that stage is hard to believe sucks they're not making music and didn't they open for you as you guys were both sort of? Yeah, they they opened up for us on like a like maybe like our second amphitheater tour show, uh, like you know whatever whole tour uh, where Incubus was opening up. It was like Incubus and Sugar Ray uh, were opening up in '97, and I think in '98 we did a like a month with No Doubt, mm. and uh, and then they then they opened up for what's that? What's Gavin's band's name? <laughs> Oh, Bush. Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> that, that was really the thing that got them over the over the top was probably blowing them off stage every night while they were while they were on their ascent as well. And three eleven and Bush are still around. Yeah. <laughs> I wish I wish no doubt was still in that group because you know, like I said, I, I really looked up to their their work ethic and their 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 showmanship was just off the chart. In Defense of Ska, we'll return in a moment. 
Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. What was your exposure to this music? I know you, you guys come from Omaha, then and you, pretty early on you moved to Southern California. Were you aware of this music before that, or were you starting to discover it after you after coming to LA? I played my first show with 311 five days after my 16th birthday, and we were playing Bob Marley songs here and there, mostly because Nick wanted to, mm-hmm. and uh, that was. That was a big eye opener for me. I mean, I knew, I knew past the Dutchie and, you know, whatever like, um, whatever Jimmy Cliff song, you know, Pure Jerker, just you know, but but I didn't, I wasn't soaking myself in reggae, and um, I quickly was because the bass lines were so interesting, and I, I had to, I had to learn the music. And I realized how different it was uh, approach-wise. So it wasn't, you know, it wasn't metal. It wasn't rock. It wasn't funk. It was a whole nother beast. And my job was really important to be authentic. And and I I take that really seriously because I don't know, music's music's the best thing. Music music's music's number one. You know, family and music, (laughs) you know, the the tie and oxygen probably somewhere in there too. But, but yeah, I I learned real quickly and I had a lot of fun learning it. I mean, Nick taught me lively up yourself and that quickly got into our set and was super fun to play, especially with like a ripping loud distorted guitar solo in it. You know, it's like, what is what's going on? Like, I don't know. It, it was, it was a uh, new information for me. And uh, I mean, that's the only way you learn is, is when it's new information. So, you know, reggae and ska and rock steady and dance hall later on is all always so fresh. There's a freshness to it that I don't know that, that rock and roll sometimes has and sometimes doesn't have, you know, what about this sort of um, high, you know, high energy ska stuff? Like, like you said, Fishbone was really a critical band. Was there a point where you started discovering like these American, like post two tone ska bands that were mixing ska and like all these other elements? I mean, I remember listening to early Boston tapes and just, I mean, speaking of element of danger, I mean, it would be like it was 
intimidating to think about going to a show. You know, like what? You know, it's going to pop off. There's going to be huge flanneled men <laughs> going just absolutely crazy. <laughs> like this, this Boston-shaped person is going to be this close to me. You know, and I and I'm I'm nervous, and I'm in the audience, right? It's just, it seemed like a incredible drunken mess that you know you'd think twice about dipping your toes into and that, that's that you know this, if you can do that and get people to show up and you, you got it made what a, what an incredible band i i found an old interview um i think it was in the 90s where you had said that nick had a support your local ska band sticker on his guitar case yeah yeah totally way back <laughs> right for sure yeah nick nick was all over the place nick nick would listen to everything i mean i didn't know people really liked elvis costello that much i knew i knew that i knew that you know they had to have but i didn't really know anybody and he was like he was that guy he was also the clash guy and we didn't in my circle we weren't we weren't listening to that we were listening to the smiths and the cure and Bauhaus and you know later on Nine Inch Nails of course and it's on the dark side of things so that freshness and that kind of positive reinforcement you know mostly um, that was eye opening for me too that was new information for me too and it's something that I think lends itself to our in three eleven our general longevity is. Uh, is people enjoy hearing what we're saying because you know we're solving problems we're we're getting out of bed without complaining <laughs> much or publicly and uh and you know that that lends itself to the music too even even if the the lyrics are dark uh if the music is bouncing and bubbly you know, there's that motivation in it and you, and you can relate to the dark side of the story. I, I think, you know, I, I think that's super important. That's why, that's why music's number one. Okay. So you mentioned I'll be here for a while, which is definitely, I th- that is like the most ska like song that you have, right? Yeah, I would say. Okay. This song was uh 2001 and it was actually a hit or it was on, it was a billboard charting song. Yes. It was a single, got a cool video for it. Yeah, that's why I push it. I'm like, this is bigger than you think, guys, and and it goes over really, really well. You you know, you wanna you wanna make new fans. You wanna remind them of of old songs that they hadn't heard live. And I don't know, it's it's like a greatest hit song that is just slightly in the periphery of our normal set list, and that's why I like to pepper it in because you know, spice. Sure, yeah. So I, I was reading that Nick wrote this song like 10 years before you guys ended up recording it. Yeah, there's there's probably some very early versions of it. I remember playing it back then too. Uh, I remember a friend of ours that passed when I was 17 hearing that song, you know, and that was 93, you know. So he had it, he had it at least for probably close to 15 years, I would say. I mean, that's how I remember it right or wrong <laughs> was the early the early version also ska or did that come in later it was probably more and more ska yeah it was probably faster because we were young and and <laughs> didn't know how to slow things down so yeah it was probably even more yeah 
I, I, I like the way it turned out, but but I do remember earlier versions being really like kind of riffing. Yeah. You know, and that being really cool. And we were, you know, we were loose and free back then. And tempos would vary in in a cool way as per the audience's general excitement. And that's always fun. I love that. Love it when a band does that. But you know, enough about me. Why aren't we talking about a hundred gex? <laughs> right, right. I mean, I mean, it's the it's the elephant, right? It's the elephant. You posted a photo uh, with the gex, so you met the gex uh, like sometime this year, right? Yes, and I was fucking freaking out. I'm such a fan. I'm such a such a nerd. And you know, it's not like if it's some older cat, I'm gonna give them space. But if it's some young punk, I'm I'm gonna be like, hey, you're fucking incredible. And you know, and I'm and I'm you know I'm Peanut from 311, but I love what you're doing. You know, please, please, and thank you for doing what you do. How you know? I was like, how the fuck are you doing what you're doing at all? Right? Like, I want to understudy with Dylan for re- for real. And and uh, I love their their ska. You know, they they're dipping their toes in it left and right. I mean, it's and it's for me like an uh, electronic authentic version of it like what's the next page i think those those kids really know what they're doing you know between laura laura and dylan just just fucking killing it did you talk to them at all about ska i i don't know if it if ska specifically came up but i'm sure he saw the crazy in my eyes that you might hear a tinge of in my voice uh, as I was just wrapped up in the moment. I mean, my my 13-year-old son was like, pretty sure that's Dylan from 100 Decks over there. And I'm like, no fucking, oh my, I'm like, no way. I'm like, it is. I'm like, no way. And then he moved and he got like a drink and went away from the bar and was going to go sit down. And my son Falcon was like, you're going to go talk to him, aren't you? And I go, and I just like slapped my phone down and I walked over there <laughs> and talked to him. And uh, yeah, I gave him a mouthful for like five minutes. And it was really fun. It was really like cathartic because, you know, I, I mean, I'm being as honest as I can in a really vulnerable way to some person I have no, you know, I don't, I didn't really deserve to bother his personal space, but I felt like I, I did just because we're in the same game. And I knew I could, you know, tell him how, how much I, I genuinely feel uh, about, about their music and what they're, what they're doing with their influences, uh, Scott included. And it's just, I don't know, it's just amazing. I, I love hearing new, crazy musicians uh, absolutely, you know, destroying the playbook. You know, as the Whalers wrote a specific playbook and we're all still listening to it, I think 100 Gex is going to uh, have a huge influence on music and just let people know that, and you can do almost anything. You know, if, you, if you're inspired and you're, talented you know that that definitely helps and you put in the time because that's what i hear from them i hear them like sweating in the studio making thing making the thousand layer cake that you have to do sometimes which is absolutely beyond me i i just you know i'll put in the i'll put in the two million miles on the road but i can't sit down and and make the musical thousand layer cake like like you know, people like that, like studio rats can do. I, I look up to that so much. 
Um, it's like uh, it's like Stanley Kubrick for me. Mm-hmm. You know, there's there's the amount of detail in one image or you know five seconds of music that you know just makes me just do the chef's kiss thing or cry a little silent tear in my shame closet. It's just you know that that's what gets me out of bed is is those details and that passion and seeing what people do with their time really uh really you know lights me up they must have been stoked to meet you too because i mean clearly 311's an influence that that they pull from yeah dylan it was just dylan uh laura wasn't there but dylan was definitely stoked he was like no way he was like oh, i was like you know i lo- love you guys and he was talking about seeing a show back in the day when he was 12 or something like that and it's, it's just it's crazy how much reach we have and uh and with the longevity and the amount of shows you know if you don't if you haven't seen one yourself you know somebody who has you know chances are if you're any kind of a music fan we've been around that much and i like i like that influence i i hope that's one of the things that we leave behind besides the the positive message and you know whatever being eclectic and being able to show all those influences really boldly uh i want to show that kind of like I don't know, like that longevity is is important, and putting in the time performing is uh, is something that will allow the the band to bake over time. And uh, you can't fake patina. Mm-hmm. You know, you you can't you can't fake what me and Chad can pull off. You know, after playing together for for thirty plus years, it's it's a it's a real thing, and uh, and it's it's really important. Well, I'm hoping that we see a hundred Gex three eleven collaboration soon. Oh man, I would I would so love that. Are you familiar with uh, Jeff Rosenstock? Mm, I don't believe so. He used to be in a band called Bomb the Music Industry, but he's been doing solo stuff for the past um, decade or so. Cool. He okay. He's a massive three eleven fan. He wrote a uh, open letter on Change.org in tw- 2014 saying that his dream is to play the 311 cruise. Wow. I mean, we're still doing it. This is one of the cool things, yeah. you know, yeah. and br- and bringing out, you know, like bands like the urge and fishbone um, that, you know, it's at some point in their careers, they weren't playing that many shows and, you know, seeing them still just slay on stage is, is, uh, is nuts. It's the best thing ever. Jeff, they're, they're out there touring. He's got a band. They tour, they headline, you know, medium sized clubs right now have a loyal fan base ska roots cool so just i'm just putting that out in the universe out to you uh he would love to play the cruise sometime (laughs) nice i literally worked a jeff rosenstock show yesterday at at 924 gilman street and i I told them we were interviewing you and i was like is there anything you want me to ask peanut and they're like ask him if we can do the cruise (laughs) (laughs) we we must be we must be cruising that's cool right on yeah i mean tell him to get a hold of Corey at 5B Management, put in his, put, you know, shoot your shot. All right, Jeff. Yeah, for sure. Totally. Okay, so you brought up The Urge. Let's talk, let's talk about The Urge a bit. Yeah. The Urge uh, are from St. Louis. I think they started in like the 80s. Yes. Definitely the early version of The Urge was highly Scott-oriented. I think they, those influences tempered down a bit through the years, but they didn't ever go away completely. Yeah, no way. Yeah, for, for sure. When did you guys become friends? I know you guys have toured a lot with the Urge or played a lot with the Urge over the years. When did you guys first connect with them? I mean, it was really early on. 
it might not have been 93, but, but it could have been, but it was certainly 94 um, when we were supporting gra grassroots and doing those 100 show years. Uh, we we did them with them. I mean, those are the chicken and light beer only days, you know, which which are sparkling memories, but pretty fucking difficult, you know, when it when it was when it was present day. You know, it was it was it was squalid and and stanky, but man, it was it was great too. I mean, I I met my wife in in that period. I met her in '93 when we were sweating in clubs and, you know, in Louisiana, it's just something about having that kind of traveling circus. I mean, between the urge and the funk junkies, I mean, what we must have, it, it feels like we played a thousand shows together. And I, and I know it's not like that. It's, but it's hundreds or a couple hundred and uh, just that wildness and the, you don't know what's going to happen every night factor. Definitely made us better performers because both those bands have such unhinged front men, you know, I mean, and, and coming from like a fishbone influence, um, that's a tall order. Uh, and it's, and it's, it's a lot to, uh, you know, pull off every night. So I don't know. It was just, those are, those are touring brothers of ours that we would, uh, fight, die and kill for <laughs> if I, if I may be so bold. <laughs> I know I did. I did like seeing that you guys still play with them, and like, didn't did you bring them? Was it this year that you brought them on the cruise? Yeah, I think it's it's a couple times they've been on the cruise, and they have a great time. They bring out their families, you know, and they, you know, I don't think they play a ton of ton of shows. We'll be right back after this. Hey, everybody! It's Barry from the What Podcast. Hey, it's Russ. Hey, it's Brian, and we are giving away two tickets to Bonnaroo twenty twenty four. These are GA+, and they include camping. Russ, how do people get qualified? We want to hear your top artists to play on the Bonnaroo 2024 lineup. Call 423-667-7877 and tell us who we should check out. It's the What Podcast. Thanks. All right, so I want to go back a little bit. So the first official show that you played as 311, you opened for Fugazi. Yeah, that was like a lucky phone call. I need to hear more about this. Definitely. Yeah. I had a girlfriend that saw the flyer at the record store that said like Fugazi was looking for bands to op open up. And we called and we got, I mean, we got a slot better than a local band that had been together for years. I don't, you know, I don't know how we were lucky enough to lucky enough to get that slot and, you know, cellophane ceiling, which is a killer name of a band. Um, they, they deserved it more than we did, but we got the slot and, uh, and yeah, it was a, it was a great show. It was un unreal, super, super fun. And I was just, I was so, eat sleeping and drinking fugazi at that at that time that it was it was just kind of meant to be that's what it felt like what's your favorite fugazi record i mean i'm, I'm a 13 songs repeater guy and you know nice. like i won't i won't choose between the two yeah 
they're the same album for me. It's that, that those eras just crush into each other in a, in a perfect way. And I, I love the, the, the angst and the, the tension that they're capable of, of putting together and, and the release, you know, that, that comes from, from that, that energy is, you know, second to none. I mean, also from a bass player standpoint, those records, you can't really fuck with them. No way. I mean, I was talking to the bass player after that show. I was like, I was like, that was great. You know, I'm like 16 <laughs> in, 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 in Omaha, Nebraska, talking to punk rock legends, you know, and he, they were like, they were like, that show sucked. <laughs> Basically. <laughs> I was like, no way. He was like, how you like he was like, oh, we just, you know, didn't feel good. They, there was like a physical I think they had some flu going around or, you know, a cold or whatever, but they didn't they weren't feeling it in that way, but it was a great show. They were totally wrong. Their perspective means nothing. <laughs> so, so you guys were fish hippos, is that what, and then you on stage you said, We are now three eleven. Right. Yes. We had the unfortunate first first name. <laughs> How long were you a band as Fish Hippos? Oh, it was just like in re- in rehearsals, and then it was like on the advertisements, and probably right around that same time, you know, as we announced it during that show, we had we had made the switch to something more. Uh, I don't know. L- less less specific. And that was the whole point of of three eleven was that it didn't mean anything. It was like it was like the Smiths. It was a it was a a container that you could fill in with your own ideas, not not someone else's. Nick didn't want to be the the crazy boys or the the good boys or you know anything like that. He wanted it to be uh, indistinct and esoteric, and you know allow us to to make the definition from our content. How nervous were you playing? opening for Pugazi in front of what probably like four or 500 people I'm going to guessing at like a, a local hall or something in Omaha. Yeah, it was 500 people at a place called the Sokol that, that it isn't there anymore, unfortunately, but it was there for a really, really long time. I think they, they've now they've changed the name and uh, they've, they've upgraded it. So it's still a gig, but it's not the, you know, it's not the place that I saw Danzig in when he was supporting the like the you know the self-titled album and he did mother and the drum set was like 17 feet off the stage and had purple lights and you know i can go back there in a, in a heartbeat but yeah i was i was real nervous opening up for uh fugazi um i was ready i had put in the time uh, at that point I, I must have been playing bass three hours a day i mean i was i was missing out on on events and so social situations. I mean, I, I skipped homecoming. I mean, I, I, I was, I was, I was busy trying to be ready for whatever was going to come next, you know, and even as at a, at a young age, I was, I was pretty focused. You know, my mom, my mom had a backup plan for me and was probably hoping for me to come back after a few months of, of coming out here in California and struggling, but it was not, it was not the case. By the time I came back and got my diploma after leaving in February and getting the diploma in like May or June, we had already gotten a, a record contract. We had put in so much time recording and doing shows in the two years after that first show at the Sokol with Fugazi that, uh, 
that we were ready to go on the road and and record the first album. So uh, yeah, those were those were super fun times, but they were uh, you know they were they were they were dense. They're dense with with uh, with doubt and confusion, but also like you know dead dead set on trying to do this one thing. Yeah, that show. So the Sokol show was um, June nineteen ninety. Yep, June tenth. Yeah, June tenth, nineteen ninety. So when did you move to California? It was a couple years later. Yeah, we moved. It was like February twenty something, nineteen ninety three. Okay. Or I mean, I mean ninety two. Sorry. So you're you're like eighteen then by the time you're moving to California. Yeah, I was seventeen. Wow. Yeah, I bet I could see your mom being worried sick about that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, she actually gave. Uh, a friend of hers that lived out here, like power of attorney. So if, you know, if I was signing a record contract or, you know, whatever I, you know, got hurt or something, she could, she could take care of me. Uh, I read the story about, I think it was your first tour. Um, you guys were touring around in an RV and you were to- towing an R- a VW bus. Very ska. <laughs> um, it wasn't our first tour because we had, we had done, we had done some van touring before that and uh and yeah fire yeah can you tell the fire story yeah we had just um we had just fueled up the rv which was chad's dad's rv that we were borrowing and and uh and abusing (laughs) in the way that we were touring uh, we were towing something that was not meant to be towed like that you know yeah yeah so we had just gassed up the RV and didn't realize that there was something faulty in the fuel line or maybe as the fuel line attached to the internal combustion engine, but there was a fire uh, in the back of the RV as we were driving through Missouri. And by the time we figured out that the it was a loss. Um, we had to jump. Uh, Nick was last and I wasn't on, I, I wasn't on the RV. I was in our, our sound guys, Honda in the air conditioning. So, uh, so I tell this from a disjointed perspective, but, uh, Nick was the last one out and, and he had long hair and he, uh, had to shave it all off cause it like burnt his eyebrows. He had to jump through like a tiny little wall of fire uh, as the as the you know the the flames were overtaking the whole vehicle and the RV was full of the the bus the RV, the Volkswagen part of the the whole touring mechanism was full of our equipment and uh, so it was all our gear and you know twenty thirty thousand dollars worth of RV that we oh, couldn't God. afford to buy or repair so it was it was really a put up or shut up moment and we borrowed money and paid it back within six months uh, after being you know kind of put in our place by a higher power <laughs> or mother nature or you know or whatever fate you know it was, it was kind of like that you know if there if there was like a you know maybe i will be a, a plumber and you know, this is this is this is stressful you know i got to the gig with with our sound guy brad and was like what the you know where they should have been here already like we had we had probably you know taken our time or maybe we were going faster than them but they called ahead and they said that the show was canceled 
And I, I didn't know until a couple hours later that why it was canceled. And, and we borrowed gear, played a show. I'm pretty sure the next day at a brewery in Omaha, now defunct, called Sharky's, which was an awesome place. Um, super fun, lots of lots of pool. Um, and yeah, and then after that, we just we came to California and, and we just you know we used the borrowed money to put the pieces back together and put shows on the calendar and yeah, we've been doing it ever since. Wow! So you you get a record contract within like a six months of moving to California. Yeah, we were sending tapes out before we moved, so it wasn't like you know there was immediate interest. I mean. Eddie offered our producer for music and grassroots was on our doorstep the moment we landed uh, here in California. When we got to our Van Nuys house, we were in contact with him and he, he knew where we were landing and he was very interested in, in fostering our young talent and definitely had everything to do with us getting signed. Um, and there was a, a friend of ours uh, named Bo, who worked at a jazz label called GRP back in the day, and she connected the dots for us. So it was it was a coming together of of friends and um, you know professional angels that got us to uh, that accelerated kind of uh, interest uh, so early on. And Capricorn, our label, was like, "Yeah, you're going to play shows." They're like, you, you know, maybe you'll get on the radio. They're like, we don't really care. We like, you know, we like your band. You put on a great show. Why don't you guys do that? You know, and we'll help you guys do that. We're going to put you a couple hundred thousand dollars in debt to make an album, but you guys should go, go you know, you guys should do shows. And we're like, cool, let's do that. <laughs> but yeah, it was expensive. It's expensive to start a band up, you know, in, the, in those days, it was very, very expensive sure. and super hard to recoup. We were lucky as hell to to do it, and it just made us want to work harder because we weren't going to stop. You know, we're like, okay, well, we're six fig- figures in debt, and we make, you know, five hundred, a thousand dollars a show. It's like, okay, well, how many shows is that? <laughs> like, let's, let's let's go. You know, you know, we'll we'll die trying. Yeah, the the first single, uh, do you write? Like, you listen to that song, and it, it seems like you guys are all over the place stylistically which it's a great song so i'm not like saying it as a negative but like you can really see how especially in those early days you're you're trying to do a lot and you're and you're taking influence from all over the place yeah yeah we were we were having so much fun with with the way it you know it felt to throw everything together that uh yeah we didn't we weren't really even aware of how you know schizophrenic or or disjointed or unhinged, if you will, might, it might come across because we knew it was a good song, you know, even with all these, these kind of stylistic gymnastics going on. That's a good sound. Um, <laughs> yeah, it, it just made sense to us. And, and we really did have a lot of support from the label as far as making our own bed. They, they weren't really telling us what, what single, we just kind of agreed on it. We were like, you know, let's let's do this let's do that um but it, it was never really a struggle to pick out singles which were notoriously bad at 
So when I was going down the rabbit hole of uh, watching your bass solos, I also found a video that was from your, I guess, high school talent show where you're you're covering um, Red Hot Chili Peppers, Taste the Pain. Was that like, just like a group of friends? Well, that, I mean, if you, we were 311. That was, that was honestly, that was like the first performance of, of any band called 311. We were called the 311 Band. That's how it was written down on the, on the call sheet, but we were 311. And... Uh, <laughs> Yeah, we played, we, we were, there was a couple of different drummers that were happening. And, uh, and then I ran into Chad and hitched my wagon to, to him professionally and emotion, emotionally. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, and we played as 311 um, with Nick in the audience uh, at like a high school uh, event. But you know those weren't those weren't shows. You know they were performances, but they they weren't they weren't shows. That's that's why the Fugazi thing's the first one. Yeah, yeah. I, I would say, but yeah, those. It's amazing that that footage exists, and you know I'm thankful that that got recorded. You de- you're definitely going hard in that video too. Oh yeah, I was I was I was not doing anything except for yeah coming in. I mean, it, for me, it, it's a few years later we're you know, doing the, the stage, the Ed Sullivan stage with David Letterman, you know, playing down, you know, and you can see that footage of course as well. And I wanted to have that same energy, you know, you know, a few hundred shows into the career and really tasting the, the, I don't know, the opening of the doors. Cause it wasn't success yet for us. It was still a ton of hard work. But the doors were opening for us, and we were getting these opportunities to play in front of, you know, a million people at once on TV and stuff, stuff like that. So, the coming hard, young, and pushing that through like the first wave of of people seeing us was really the point. You know, like as a 15 year old, and then later as a 20 year old, I wanted to be uh, young and crazy, and still knowing what to do. Yeah. Another thing I read is that you cut your dreadlocks and uh, when you broke up with your girlfriend and you gave them to her. Is that, is that a true story? Yeah, I don't know. I don't know about, no, I don't, I don't think so. I think it was more just like I needed things to change. So I, I got rid of, you know, my my hair, my long hair for the first time um, and just kind of let it, let it go. Yeah. I don't think there was, there was an exchange, although that's very romantic. Although and gross at the same time, equal equal parts. I've I've got a I've got a couple dreads, honestly, from the second wave of me growing dreads. Like what you see in Come Original was a second batch, and I've got like the the mega dread from from that batch some somewhere in my house, which also is romantic and gross. Do you keep it in a in a plastic bag? It's in it's in a box somewhere, like dried. Okay. So yeah, yeah, yeah. Keep, keep some mold down. Yeah, yeah. I also had had white boy dreads for a period of time, and uh, I have one in a drawer still. Yeah, that's do. it. That's it. Yeah. We're linked. <laughs> yeah, people talk about you know they're like, hey, peanut, you know, bring back the dreads, and you know, beyond my my wife in like hell no yeah i'm like yeah i can't you can't do that in this day and age and, th- and no. that's okay i don't i don't pine for the ability to be culturally insensitive or or whatever sure. like you know we're we're lucky enough to be able to play the 
the music we can play without being called out on, on those in those kind of ways yeah I, because because hopefully we do it in a respectful way you know it's definitely how we're coming off as as fans grabbing all these styles from from all over the world but but yeah taking on a look is 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 a whole nother thing you don't want to you know you don't, other people's culture isn't your costume and we and and now we know and now we know better and and also i mean i don't know about you but mine mine did not smell great <laughs> Yeah. I didn't know that mine didn't smell great, but I'm hearing, I'm hearing people say that recently. Yeah, from your wife. Uh, well, from from bandmates and, and 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 friends. We got roasted in Omaha at an event called the Face in the Floor thing for the Omaha uh-huh. Press Club, and we got roasted by some of our friends. And that was one of the things that came up. Was that oh damn! I, I was a, I was a smelly dread. <laughs> oh, what a bummer. <laughs> It's okay. It was, it was better than some of the other things that got said. Ah, nice. <laughs> I want to ask about your appearance on Eric Andre's show when you, during the Investigate yeah. 311 bit. <laughs> what a good bit. That was, I, I don't know how I had heard of him, but when I, when I, when I knew that he was interested in us um, participating in his mayhem, that that was something we were definitely going to do. Like I was, I, I don't really pull that card all that often. But like going to the pyramids in Mexico City was one thing that I was like, like we're doing this. And then the Eric Andre show was also one of the things like, hey, I don't know what's going to happen, but but we got to do this. This is important. So yeah, I mean, I remember walking into the studio, which was right around the corner from the Hive, where we rehearse and and write and 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 whatever. Um, he's right. I mean, we could have walked to it. It was literally that close. We walked through a room, like an empty room, probably, you know, 10, 10 by 10, 15 by 15, proper studio room. You could do anything with it. But it was full of drywall, right? It was a mountain of drywall. And the, and the crew was kind of standing by it. And they started giggling when they saw us react to it. Because it was like a car-sized amount of broken drywall. And I'm like, what is going on here? And tell me more. And, and, and this is going to be great. Yeah. So, I mean, Eric's a bass player, so he took it easy on me. And uh, is a hell of a brilliant, wonderful person. And yeah, I don't know anyone who balances out that I know what I'm doing. And I'm totally crazy. Thing. I don't think anybody does it better than that. <laughs> It's incredible. The way it looks, though, I mean, maybe maybe because it was done professionally, it looks like you guys are really taking a beating. Oh, it was very real. Yeah, yeah. I mean, Nick was Nick was being hit. You know, Nick was being hit with a blindfold on. I mean, he got hit right in the middle, which is uncomfortable f- for anyone, but especially men. And 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 like Tim was getting shocked. Right there was like an electrode like on his nipple that was like shocking and it was it was it was it was a lot it was it was it was more than we had bargained for and i don't know that's that's good tv you know, that's how it's done someone i can't remember who it was someone got like waterboarded i think yeah i think nick was being waterboarded and and being hit nick took it the worst i think eric eric's got something against singers yeah apparently <laughs> which i totally understand i totally I get it. 
yeah he was trying to like assault me but it didn't really make the cut like he was trying to chase chase around and you know like get in you know get in my get in my pants <laughs> and i was like fighting him off and i guess i guess it didn't play play well but yeah that was what it was supposed to happen and yeah it didn't it didn't make the cut but yeah that was those are memories i'll never forget i love seeing and there's a tyler the creator moment on the eric andre show before we were were you know filmed in the show where they talk about investigating 311 they all get up and do some kind of creepy dance has investigate 311 been a thing that's kind of followed you around or people like kind of joke about that with you yeah a little bit you know you'll see that in like chats and, and stuff like that if i go live on instagram every once in a while there'll be some wise smart ass put in investigate 311 and you know we'll all we'll all laugh because we know where that's coming from and you know i don't know it's it's, it's just great <laughs> so a friend of mine former guest of this show uh jo- jordan morris who's a, a tv writer podcaster he wrote a uh graphic novel called bubble are you familiar with bubble i'm not familiar with bubble because he has a cameo appearance by you in it. Nice. No way. Yeah, yeah. So. Yeah. Send it to me. Yeah, yeah. The character is having a, uh, t- takes some kind of, was, takes drugs and hallucinates and you appear to them and provide sage advice. Story checks out. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. That sounds like Nick, Nick and Essay's appearance in the like animals show on HBO. Where, uh-huh. where there's a, there's like a, you know, like a lonely teenagers talking to his 311 poster and then Nick and SA like start talking back. They're like, Hey, it's, you know, it's like, it's Nick from 311. <laughs> so funny. <laughs> Such a, like a meta fourth wall kind of situation. I'm like, I'm like, Oh yeah, this is why, you know, this is why we stick around. This is why we keep doing what we do. I mean, between 311 day um victory lap and the cruises and stuff like that those tv appearances are just you know gold for us it really really is it's it's the it's the best you know we're looking at ourselves in the mirror we're the we're the universe understanding itself in the in those little moments it it means the world to us so your name you you kind of mentioned the name was kind of a had no specific meaning that's part of what you liked it but everyone i know Everyone I know, they have three numbers that they bring up whenever possible. And those numbers are 420, 69, and 311. And if you take 69 away from 420, you get 311. Yeah, I know. Yes. Mind blown. Yes. That's the it was meant to be sort of thing. I know. And, and you know, John Oliver talked about it on his show too he's like the most important three digit number um besides the the beatles of rap rock in 311 he totally said this is your is your um um oh it's your whatever your uh your how you get a checking account it's your whatever pin number number uh no, it's not your PIN number. It's it's how you get credit. It's your credit score. Excuse me, as I yes. fumbled through thoughts. Yeah, he said your second, the second most important three-digit number besides your credit score, is the Beatles of Rap Rock and Three Eleven. And I'm watching this, and I'm like, oh my god, because I'm a fan already. I love, I love, I love almost anything English. Um, so, 
yeah so it's easy to easy to like john oliver forever i want to shake that hand because <laughs> that's good exposure that's crazy good exposure <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for listening to In Defense of Ska. To support the show, sign up for our Patreon. Intro and outro music by Slow Gherkin from the EP Lives. Additional music by Dan P. and the Bricks. Please rate and review the podcast and tell a friend. Follow at In Defense of Ska on social media. The book In Defense of Ska by Aaron Carnes is available from Clash Books. Order it online. Chris Reeves of SPI is our editor. This is your co-host, Adam Davis of Omnigon, leading you by saying ska now more than ever. All right, starting off season four with a bang. Yeah. Do you ever think that we would have a peanut from 311 on the podcast? I uh, had been texting, or not, not texting, I'd been tweeting at him for like eight months to get him on the show. <laughs> and you know what? It worked. Sometimes that pays off. Yeah. So we talked to Pina a lot more behind the curtain. We did. Can you believe that? You can head over and sign up for our Patreon and hear the rest of the conversation over there. There's never enough peanut. And uh, that's why it's worth the $5 to sign up to Patreon to get all of that peanut. You might have a peanut allergy, but you won't be allergic to this peanut. No. We got another amazing episode (laughs) next week. Yeah. What do we have next week, Aaron? It's a full-on Craig of the Creek episode we're gonna discuss the ska music of craig of the creek with the one and only jeff rosenstock and the show creator ben levine my kids love craig of the creek this is gonna be a good one say goodbye to your credit card rewards greedy corporate mega stores led by walmart and target are pushing for a law in congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets the durbin marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it if you love your credit card rewards tell your lawmakers hands off my rewards tell them to oppose the durbin marshall credit card bill Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.